First of all, I'd like to just, uh, a word of thanks to our Knights of Columbus and Ladies Auxiliary. Every year they do a corporate communion, come to Mass together to express their fraternity and their fellowship in the Lord, and we are so grateful to you for all that you do for the parish, all the, the service, all of the ways you are there for us priests in particular. So thank you, and thank you for being here this evening. The Vigil of Pentecost, last day of Easter, we wear red, symbolizing the fire, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we will celebrate tomorrow. Interestingly, the readings are different for the Vigil Mass than they are for tomorrow. At a Vigil Mass, regular Sunday, we would usually hear the same readings, but these kind of still anticipate what's coming tomorrow. Let's take a look at them in order to understand a little bit better what this feast is that we celebrate. First, we see the antithesis of Pentecost, the Tower of Babel. All of the people are one in that they speak the same language, but they're, they're driven by pride and fear. Come, let us build a city. Let us make a tower and a name for ourselves, lest we be driven or scattered all over the earth. It's kind of ironic. The very thing that they're afraid of, losing their identity, losing this recognition, they're going to lose because of their, their hubris, their pride. God's going to scatter them. Now, for you parents or married couples, I'd like you to imagine for just a moment, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly your spouse was speaking a totally different language, or maybe your son or daughter. Now, some of you might be like, well, they already do. <laughs> but imagine that that was to continue uh, for more than just a normal conversation. It would be extremely frustrating. The story doesn't tell us whether God broke it down family lines even. But it very well may have been that way. Their pride led to God humbling them in a very radical way where they couldn't communicate. They could no longer build. They could no longer even interact. And perhaps it was the very people who they weren't so close to who they found themselves speaking the same language as. Scripture says that this is the cause of the various languages. We know that there are language groups and some that have similarities. Perhaps part of the frustration of the Tower of Babel was that they could almost understand the other person, but not. Pentecost is the opposite of this. For the Holy Spirit, when he fills the disciples, the apostles who are in the upper room, he makes it possible that even though they speak one language, the various people who have come for the feast from all over the, the Mediterranean and all over the, the Roman world are able to hear the apostles proclaiming Jesus 
in their own language. He breaks down what was a source of division among the peoples. The Holy Spirit, thereby, is revealed as the one who unites peoples, not around a false unity of of pride or progress or what we can accomplish, but unites them around Christ. And so the church, which sees itself as being born from the side of Christ and going public on the day of Pentecost, is the new source of unity for the world. The Holy Spirit is the one who breaks down animosity or the one who breaks down hatred and barriers and divisions amongst people enabling us to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first insight. The second one, from our reading to the letters to the Romans, Paul says, For in hope we were saved. In the same way, the Spirit too comes to the aid of our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us how to pray. He is a pledge of hope. He is the one who enables us to call upon Christ in faith. He searches our minds and hearts and knows the depths He knows us better than ourselves. And he will pray in us. One of the remarkable things about the saints, when people would catch them at prayer, is that they would see them almost outside of themselves. Caught up, sometimes completely unaware of their surroundings. Solanus Casey, a Franciscan, who was not allowed to hear confessions. He was a priest, but it was thought he was called a simplex priest, one they thought didn't have enough training in order to hear confessions. Very humble man. For many, many years, he was the porter, or took care of the door for the Franciscan friary where he was. I believe it was in Detroit. Father Groeschel, another Franciscan who some of you may have heard of who started the uh, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal in Bronx, New York, remembers when he was a young Franciscan himself, one night he couldn't sleep. And so he went down to the chapel and he flipped on the light in the chapel and he saw Solanus Casey there in the middle of the night just praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament, totally oblivious that the lights had been turned on, totally oblivious that anyone else was there. He said he felt that he had come into a room into a conversation that was not his own, that he was not to be there. So he flipped the light off and went back to his cell. Another story, John Paul II, one I've shared with you before, often they couldn't find him. And one of the secretaries would say, have you checked the chapel? Maybe he's praying there. 
They would sometimes pray prostrate before the Blessed Sacrament, before the tabernacle. And he would pray exactly like St. Paul says, from the, from the depths of his being, from his gut. You know, he, was, he had all the, the weight of the different things that were going on at that time. Remember, he's dealing with the, before the Iron Curtain is fallen. Communism is a real threat in a, a major way. And he would be found praying, praying for the world's situation, praying, allowing the Holy Spirit, rather, to pray in him. This is something we need to rediscover, that the Holy Spirit is the great master of the interior life, of the spiritual life. He teaches us what to ask for, how to ask for it, and how to live in the graces that we've been given by God. Finally, our gospel. Kind of an odd scripture passage here. Doesn't even talk that much about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says that the Spirit, there, of, there was of course no Spirit yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't exist, but it means that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to the disciples as he would be given to them after Jesus ascended to the Father. But Jesus is telling them, he's promising them, he's giving them hope that the water, the living water, the life-giving word of God that comes forth from his heart will also come forth from theirs. It almost would be like if you could go to a spring, fill up a bucket of a pail of water, bring that home, pour it on the ground, and suddenly a spring would come up from the place where you would pour that water. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit in that way, not only to quench our thirst, but so that we being filled with his Spirit might then be sources or allow that Spirit to flow from us to others. The Spirit is what brings unity. The Spirit is what teaches us how to pray. The Spirit is what makes us instruments of life to others. Let us maybe do a little examination of ourselves this evening and ask, do we really thirst for the Holy Spirit? Do we thirst for the life of God within us? Or do we try and mask that thirst, fill it with other things? We need to allow ourselves to feel the thirst for God. To come to that pure source, which is Christ. To be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can bring life to the world. The people of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make change. They wanted to have a lasting impact. But it was too human. If we want to bring lasting impact in the world, we need to be rooted in the Spirit. We need to allow Him to transform our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love.